So if you would, uh, turn in the Bible, uh, if there's one in your chair or on your phone or not, it's two verses tonight, so uh, you could probably just hang with me if you don't have something. But First Peter chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first two verses. So that's great. You can probably, if you take a long, uh, a long yawn there, I'll probably be finished. But here we go, First Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So this is God's holy word. Um, We pray that He would add His blessing to the reading of it. June 6, 1944, is the day that will live on forever, uh, as known as D-Day. It was the day when the, the Allied powers landed uh, on the beaches of Normandy, when they stormed the beaches and began uh, what, what began to turn the tide of World War II, right? Uh, what happened, though, is that on that beach, as the boats were, were rolling onto shore, and even they, some of them didn't go actually up onto shore, but right off of shore, and they would let down their drawbridges and thousands and thousands, in fact, 160,000 soldiers would eventually kind of roll out and be involved involved in that offensive. As they would let down the drawbridges of their boat, they weren't surprising anybody because the Germans were waiting for them. They had stationed themselves up on these big cliffs on the top of the beach, and y'all, they were mowing people down. I mean, they had, they had their mortars that were exploding in the boats. They had gunfire that was just killing. I mean, there was, there was death everywhere. It was rough being on that front line. Now, if those soldiers could have had the viewpoint that the pilots had who were coming in, they probably wouldn't have been as overwhelmed by the situation. Because you see, although it was tough on the front lines... There were 5,000 boats and 13,000 airplanes coming with bombs and guns and everything that only the, I mean, the people knew it, but the pilots could see it. So from that view, they could look down and they could see, we're about to win this thing. Victory is ours because the Germans were way overmatched with that. But the people on the ground on the front line, they didn't feel it. They were scared. They're dragging their buddies and their bodies back into the boats. Or they're putting them in makeshift bunkers. It was rough on the front lines. But y'all, the victory was certain. It was coming. It was just going to take a little time. So if you think about it, we could say that there was already victory in a sense. But it just had not yet been fully played out on the battlefront. Right? Victory was coming. It was certain victory. Well, Peter here uh, writes much uh, a letter to people who would have, have kind of been on the front lines. This letter was written in 63 or 64 A.D. It's not that long after Jesus uh, had lived and died, about three decades afterward. And he is writing to a group of people who were on the front lines. They were suffering. Um, They were suffering on many different levels. Religious persecution. The area was not friendly. Christianity was kind of this new upstart religion. And there were a lot of other people that were mad about it. Um, The Jewish religion, the Jewish people were mad about it because Christianity was kind of this this sect, this parasitic religion on, on, on Judaism. They weren't excited about that. And then the Greeks and the pagans weren't excited about this Christianity because it was gaining force and momentum and it was growing crazy like. 
So they weren't excited. But not only that. In the 60s AD, after, uh, after Jesus was born, or died, Nero, the famous and rather infamous emperor in Rome, he, he was emperor at that time. And under Nero is when the official persecutions of the Christian religion began. In fact, in 64, there was this massive fire throughout Rome. And most people think Nero actually started it, but he blamed it on the Christians so that people would hate the Christians. Christianity became punishable um, legally, even in that day. And so Peter, he's literally writing a letter to people who are involved in all of that. Rome is right over here. These are, these are all colonies, in, I mean not colonies, provinces that are in, within the Roman Empire. And so Peter, who's down here in Jerusalem, or maybe actually at Rome at the time, he's writing to them and saying, Take heart. Take heart. The victory has already been won. But it's hard now. I understand that. Take courage. Here is hope for the road. Okay, so Peter is writing them that. And you'd have to think, if you were one of those people, or if you're one of the people getting off the boat on D-Day, and you're seeing your friends drop dead around you, or you're literally seeing your friends drop dead around you in these nations, and, and life is tough, you would have to be asking yourself the question, is it worth it? Is Christianity worth it? If you were in this situation, or if you're on the beaches, is this war worth it? This doesn't feel worth it. I'm about to die. Is it worth it? And I honestly think that most of us here tonight, whether or not you're a Christian or not, are asking that question in some way. You're, you're asking, is what I'm going through in the name of Jesus, if you are a Christian, is what I'm going through worth it? Is, does this all make sense? Is trusting God worth it? Or is it just like believing that there's a pie in the sky somewhere and it's going to come and land someday? Or if you're not a Christian, you may be here thinking, I don't know, is it worth it? What about Christianity? You've got to sell me on it. What about Christianity uh, is something that I should follow? What about following God is something I should follow? Because I kind of like my life sometimes. I like to be able to do whatever I want. And so I want to look at you and I want to take Paul or Peter's letter here and let him tell us that it is worth it. It is worth it if you follow Jesus now. And if you don't yet follow Jesus and you're considering this and what it's all about, I hope you will hear the gospel come and say that it is worth it. It is worth it. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to begin by looking at these two verses. And there's two, only two things we're going to look at um, in this. We're going to look and see that there are a common people that are involved in this. Peter is a common man. He's writing to common people. But he's, he's writing these people an uncommon message. Okay? So let's talk about the common people involved. Um, a few weeks ago, I got an email from a friend who knew that I had uh, studied finance in college and I had been in the banking for a little while. And he sent me an email and he says, I'm just going to read it. He said, So my mom found this old original stock certificate from her dad. It is 2,000 shares of a company named Greater Georgia Investment Corporation. She says it's from 1958. Is this worthless altogether, or is there a way, is there a way to find out if we're billionaires now? So um, I live on support. People support our ministry. And I was like, dude, i got to find out because he can be a supporter. It's going to be awesome. So I get on Google. And I start typing this stuff in. And I start reading these articles. And I found, I found out, this is really interesting, that the Greater Georgia Investment Corporation 
was in fact a fraudulent company that was started in 1958 by this dude named Lee Curtis Jr. And what he did is he started this company and said that it's, it's a company that was going to give and loan money to teachers, but it was owned, kind of owned by teachers also. And he put the name of like the state superintendent of education for Georgia, he put his name and said, he's an investor and the assistant, he's an investor too. So people are like, oh yeah, I'll do it. So obviously this guy's grandparents like bought it hook, line, and sinker, 2,000 shares of it. And... Um, so I had to email him back and say, look, sorry, um, sending the link. and said, you can read about it. This guy got indicted on 25 counts of <laughs> fraud. Sorry, um, you're, it's worthless, essentially. But as we begin this whole semester, it's important that we do the background research to figure out who are the players in this. Who are the players? First, I want us to see that Peter, the author of this message, he's a common man. He's a common man, okay? The writer identifies himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, whether or not you've heard that term or not, apostle is someone who receives their, their, their uh, authority and their message from Jesus himself. That's really important. That an apostle is someone who receives his authority and message from Jesus himself in the flesh. That means... That there are no more apostles in this sense that are still living today. Right? There were apostles around Jesus in his day. Twelve of them. Disciples, apostles. Uh, But there are not still apostles today. It would be like a king uh, having a general. The general receives his authority from the king himself. The king says, you're my general. Go and do this for me. And he receives his message from the king. The king says, go and do this for me. Whatever this is, is the message uh, Peter is an apostle. He is, his authority comes from Jesus and his message comes from Jesus. So that, that tells us that Peter is not just kind of this dude who's out writing a letter. He's like, oh, no, 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 I'm just going to sit down. He's writing the very message that Jesus had given him, that God by his spirit had given him, and he's writing it to these churches and to these people. Okay, And that's really important. What else we know about Jesus, not from this letter, because there's really nothing else about Jesus as an apostle, um, but from the rest of the New Testament, Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers. He was one of his closest disciples. Many say that he was kind of the leader of the twelve, in a sense. Um, He was, in some ways, the most popular. He actually had the first mega church in Christianity. He had it by the highway. They probably had two coffee bars and maybe even... Like a second service over in Bethlehem. I don't know. But Peter was a big deal. He led the church in Jerusalem, uh, was a big deal. But what we also know from the New Testament is that Peter was kind of a train wreck. He was kind of a train wreck of a man. Um, There are lots of stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John which kind of record the events around Jesus which talk about Peter and the ways that he wasn't like the dude on, uh, on the billboard who has a smiley face and says, come worship in my church. And you're like, you've never done anything wrong in your life. How can I relate to you? That is not Peter. Um, Peter was often saying things that weren't right at the right time. Um, Jesus, Peter's like, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And, and, and Jesus said, Peter, you're about to deny me three times. And Peter said, I will never deny you. And what happened? Peter denied Jesus three times. They, people were asking him, do you follow Jesus? And he's like, no, I don't, I don't know him. And the rooster crowed and the whole... Y'all know that story, maybe. But Peter was not faithful. <laughs> he was not always doing things right. He was not always saying things right. And yet, God used him. God used a mess of a man to take forth a beautiful message. And we have to hear that. 
right? If you're not a Christian and you're here and you, all you know of Christianity is just a bunch of people whose lives seem to be all together and who seem to just kind of do everything right and you just can't relate to them, I want to tell you a couple things. Those people are lying and they're deceiving you and they're, and they're frauds, but also that that is not what Christianity is about. It is not about being good or trying to be good enough. It's not. It's about admitting that you're a mess. Like we said earlier, you're more sinful than you ever thought. And actually admitting that. But also admitting that God loves sinful people. And He uses sinful people like Peter to take forth His message. A little side note also. Peter, um, well, you read about it in Acts 17, I think it is. Um, Peter was also a racist. He had a... Kind of say, he was a Jew himself, and there was one occasion when um, Paul confronted Peter because Peter wouldn't go and eat with the Gentiles or the non-Jews because they were unclean. And um, Paul calls him out on it and says, Peter, look, you can't do that. You can't do that anymore. Jesus changed all that. He says, we're all the same now. Okay, so Peter, not the together guy that, that you always think about uh, when you think about followers of Jesus. He was a train wreck, but God was using him. Okay, so that's Peter. What about the recipients? What about the people who were receiving this message? We've already said a little bit about them. That's where uh, some of these places are where they were located. Um, the letter would circulate among these churches and amongst these people. Um, but let's read more about them. We see down there that it says that Peter's writing this to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and these other places. So a few things to note about it. God's elect. Okay. The writers of Scripture, Peter notwithstanding, talk about God's people as being His elect people. Okay? They talk about God's people as being His elect people. Now, obviously, whenever the Bible uses a word like elect or election or choose or predestination or something like that, we all kind of get squirmy and we're like, I don't know what that means. That makes me nervous. And so um, what am I going to do? I'm going to hit pause on that for just a little bit. Uh, we're going to come back to it a little bit more tonight, but then later on in the next few weeks because it's developed a little more fully. Um, but what I do want us to know, just quickly, is that Peter considers God's election, God's choosing of people to be part of the good news. He considers it to be part of, of what is actually really good news about the gospel. And it has a lot to do with the fact that because of our sin, we don't naturally reach out to God. He has to reach out to us first. And so that's just a little teaser on that, if you will. But Peter says this is part of the gospel. This is part of the good news. So he's writing to these elect exiles. Okay? Exiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, an exile is someone who um, gets, and you'll probably know this, is someone who gets taken out from their home country and has to live somewhere else. Like an alien or a resident alien somewhere else. And so Peter's writing to people who may or may not have been displaced, right? They may not physically be exiled. Some of them may have been. But what's, what he's really getting at as he's writing to, the, to these Christians, these people who are following Jesus in the message, is he's saying, look, life's hard right now. I get that. There is suffering around you. You might die for your faith. But hang on, because you are not home right now. You are living in this world right now, but your citizenship is in another world. Okay, now what does that mean? How do we make sense of that? What Peter's saying is that if you follow Jesus, 
What that is saying is that Jesus comes and He redeems you. If you you can acknowledge that you need Him, He saves you, He forgives your sin. And this world from that point forward will be hard for you because your citizenship is with God in heaven. There's something going on there that our, our soul is at angst here because of the sin in this world and in our hearts. And so we live as exiles, as strangers in this world, and we struggle. We really struggle with that. And so what Peter's trying to get them to see by using this word is that instead of trying to look at this life, and now we're talking to all of us, instead of thinking that this world, this here and now, your time at TU and even beyond, can give you everything that your heart longs for, instead of thinking you can squeeze absolute fulfillment and joy out of this life right now, What Peter's saying is there's a better day coming. There is another world coming for which all of that will be true. It's just not right now. Right now you live as aliens and strangers and exiles. But there is a better day coming. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. Um, It's just awesome. It's in a book called Mere Christianity, which is a great book. Uh, If you've never read it, I encourage you. It's really short, really great. But he says this. He says... If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. Y'all know what that's like. When, when you long for something that you look around for and you may try your hardest, you may go on the best, the best vacation. Or you may have the best relationship with someone and at some level it disappoints you. At some level you are not going to be satisfied. C.S. Lewis says, if you find yourself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you were made for a better world. You were made for another world. Friends, if you're a Christian and you really struggle to find fulfillment in this life right now, that makes sense. Because Peter's saying this life, this world, cannot give you everything that you long for. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I want to encourage you and say that as you are out there in this world, as you are living here these four years, uh, and as you go out from here, this world, even with the best job, even going into the best grad school, Even marrying the hottest guy or the hottest girl, the perfect person who you think will give you everything you want. Friends, it will let you down. You cannot be satisfied with what this world gives you fully. You will not. You are created for another world. Think about it like this. When a country sends an ambassador um, to another country to go live there and to be a diplomat and to, to keep the relations going... Um, that ambassador is kind of dropped into a foreign culture. Now, surely they have learned stuff about the culture, but imagine if you or I were dropped in into like the Congo or something. I mean, some, some place where we're clearly not going to fit in, right? Most of us. Um, and we're not going to look like we're from there. We're going to be wearing stuff like this, and it's probably not going to look like we're from there. We're going to be speaking in a way that's evident that we're not from there. And we're going to feel really uncomfortable. And we're going to be tempted to just throw it all off and to go and try to assimilate as quickly as we can to the culture, just to be kind of lose ourselves in the culture so that we can find our life there. But friends, that's not, if you have that job, that's not what you're called to do. You're called to remain who you are as a citizen and to be living in that culture. 
And if you're a Christian, that's what we're called to, is to be in this world. We don't retreat from this world, but we are in this world. And we long to see everything in this world renewed. We want to work uh, in our jobs and as students for the good of this place. And if you're an artist, we want you to do great art for the glory of God that people can enjoy and appreciate. We want everything you do in this world to have your heart. And to you put your heart into it, but you just have to know. Friends, there's another day coming. There's another world coming where every desire that you have will be satisfied. It's just not right now. Okay? So Peter is a common man. And he's writing to common people who have common struggles just like you and me. Who struggle to ask and answer the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And we're not going to, we're going to start answering that now. We're going to answer that all semester long. But Peter starts to tell them, yes, remember who you are. God has chosen you. He loves you. That's who you are. So there's the, un, the, the common people, but there's an uncommon message that goes with them. At the very end of verse 2, if you look down, we read what this message is. And it's really more of a blessing. Peter, in a sense, kind of blesses them. And he simply says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, grace and peace, it was a pretty common expression back then, particularly for biblical writers. Paul uses it. Um, John uses it some too. So it's not like Peter's deal. Um, but really, grace the message of grace and peace summarizes what Peter says in this whole letter. Grace summarizes what he's going to give us and what he's going to talk about for the next, well, we're going to talk about for the next 12 or 13 weeks and what he gives in these five chapters. But grace is a word that carries a lot of different baggage. It has a lot of different connotations. Some of you may say if you're, let's say your friend does something wrong because you don't do things wrong. If your friend does something wrong, uh, you may say, oh, let's, let's just show him a little grace. Let's cut him a little slack here, right? By which you mean, let's don't, Let's don't punish him or let's don't, you know, make fun of him as much as he or she deserves. Let's, let's cut him some grace here, right? Or, man, I need a little grace to get me through this day, right? And it's kind of a, it makes us feel good, right? Those are nice things to think about. I think of precious moments dolls when I think of the word grace. Um, but the Bible, when it uses the word grace, it is a loaded word. It is a really rich word and it means a lot of things. And it means this right here. That um, when it talks about grace, it is talking about that it is a gift that is given that you can do nothing for. It's a gift that's so amazing and so huge that in ten lifetimes, you couldn't earn it. And you couldn't do enough good things to deserve it. All you can do is receive it. Think about... Um, think about a very dry and parched land. Some of y'all are from uh, Texas around Austin and even west of that. There was a really, really bad drought um, this past summer even. Think about a really dry and parched land. It's just cracks that can literally do nothing to help itself. What it needs is something from outside to come down onto it. It needs water. It needs rain to come to it. And when the Bible talks about grace, it's talking about what comes to a dry and parched land. And friends, that land is our hearts. Our hearts are dry and parched in a sense. And all we can do is receive it. And here's why. Here's what makes our hearts dry and parched and in need of this grace that Peter is talking about. 
is because sin is not just isolated to like the one or two bad things that you know you did last week. Or maybe when you were in seventh grade and you did that one thing that was kind of bad. Or maybe um, you know of these things, you kind of have these like one-off instances like, oh yeah, that, I did that, should have done that. Sin, it's a condition that our lives, we're sinners not because we sin, not because we have these things, we're like, oh, I guess I'm a sinner now. We sin because we're sinners. It is who we are naturally by our virtue of being born into this world. It's our condition. And because of sin, y'all, our hearts are dry and parched. Apart from God, our hearts are dry and parched like the land that needs the rain. So I want you to get thinking beyond just the isolated things you've done. And how you spent too much money shopping that you know you shouldn't have done. Or how maybe you did that thing with your boyfriend or girlfriend that you promised you'd never do again. Or how you promised God you'd do this and, and, and you did this. Or you told your... Whatever it is. You do those things because you have a heart condition. Your heart is parched. It is dry. You need rain. Some of you... Um, this looks different for us. Some of you have lived lives that are more characterized by rebellion. And you've kind of looked at God and said, God, no thanks. I want to live life on my own. I want to kind of make my own choices and live and do what I want to do. And so you avoid God by doing that. Others of you, though, your life looks a lot different. You actually avoid God by rule-keeping, not by rebellion. You look at the law of the Bible and the things that your parents tell you and all this stuff, and you say, you know what, I'm going to do that. I am. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient. And I'm going to do these things. And so that's what you've done. And for a lot of you, for a lot of your lives, you've kind of done the right things. And your life just hasn't quite worked out like you thought. And God isn't blessing you or He's not answering your prayers like you thought He would. And you're kind of disappointed in God. But you see, both of you, whether or not you've done it through rebellion and saying, I don't want God... Or through rule-keeping and saying, I don't need God. I'm kind of good in and of myself. Both of you are avoiding grace. One of you is saying, I don't want it. And the other says, I don't need it. In the message of the Bible, the gospel is saying, there's coming a day, if not right now, tonight, when you're going to have to be honest with yourself and to say, you know what? This is not working out for me. You know what? This isn't working out for me either. Doing all the right things isn't working. Doing all the wrong things isn't leading me to joy. And what you need tonight isn't a list of three or four things to just kind of go and and do and and get busy doing. It's not a few things that you can go check off to go be more spiritual or to kind of become a better person. That's not the point. There's nothing uncommon about that. That is what every religion says. That's naturally what we think we ought to do is, I need to go please God by doing something better or by stop doing the bad things. But that's common. That's what everyone else in this world is doing to try and appease their their inner angst. But what Christianity says is at the opposite end of the spectrum. It says there is something that has been done outside of you. It has been accomplished outside of who you are. And it's by grace and it's offered and all you can do is receive it. 
And friends, until you realize that your heart is the dry and parched land, you will never see your need for that. But when you do, when you see that you need something to happen to you because you can't do it for yourself, you'll receive the grace. And Peter, the way he explains what this grace is, is through three things. Real quick, he says, God the Father, God the Father, with a knowledge that only God can have, chooses a people to give this grace to. It says, through foreknowledge, God chooses His elect, all that stuff, that God does it. He chooses. And then He says, God the Spirit comes and sanctifies or renews our hearts so that He's the one who awakens our eyes and our our minds to see, oh my gosh, my heart is parched. I do need that. That's what the Spirit does inside of us. And that gets us ready to look at the Gospel, to look at what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and to receive that. To believe it and accept that when Jesus died on the cross, that His death is for you. That He actually kept God's standard perfectly. And yet went up on that cross and died because He said, Believe me, my death right now that I'm dying, the blood that I'm shedding, is what you deserve. And you can have what I deserved. My perfect life can get credited to you. I did it for you. All you can do is receive it. All you can do is receive it. It's by grace. Friends, the gospel does not say go get busy. It says stop. Stop and receive the grace that is yours. That is offered to you through what Jesus has done. What the Father has done. What the Spirit has done together. It is by grace. We have, it has to be this way. It's accomplished by God Himself. And the great message is this. But friends, when that gospel message becomes yours, if you're a Christian tonight, let it renew your heart. Let it renew. If you're not a Christian, take it in. Let it fall on you like rain. Let it water you. And when it becomes yours, there will begin to be peace like nothing else you've ever known. I'm not saying your life's going to be perfect and easy because Peter's evidence by the fact he's writing this letter, it won't be. There will be suffering. There will be tough times. But there will be a peace that transcends all understanding. And it can only come from God. Friends, you only get God if you will take Him by grace through faith. So we would ask tonight and every single week at RUF, this is what Christianity says, would you believe it? Would you begin to think through it? Would you come and ask me questions about it? Ask your friends questions. Begin working through this. You will never know a peace like this. You will never know a love like this. Friends, you were made for another world. And it can be yours if you accept, believe in Christ. Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank You that Jesus has done it all. That He didn't come and do most of it And then tell us we need to go be good and do the rest of it. We thank You that when Jesus died on the cross and said, It is finished, that He meant that there is now nothing we can add to Your gift of salvation. And so, Father, would You open our hearts even right now to receive that gracious message. To just take it. To just open our arms, our hearts, And let it fall on us like rain on a parched land. We need it, Father, because this life is hard. Pray that you would give it to us in Jesus' name.
Amen. You want to stand up? We're going to sing one more song, and then um, we're done.